Boy, notice the themes in that song that go so well with what we talked about last week. The superiority of Jesus Christ over his creation. As we saw, Jesus is the creator. And we'll look back on that in just a minute. Fair as the sunshine, fairer still the moonlight, all the twinkling starry hosts. But Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels have can boast. He is superior to it all, folks, and he is the reason we sing, right? What a glorious way to prepare us for Colossians. Back in Colossians uh, today in chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 21, but we're going to go back. I know that we had a number of folks, or a lot of good reasons weren't with us last week, but you missed a great passage. We covered Colossians in both the morning and the evening service. Because this point here in verses 15 through 20 is this glorious description that's rather unique to Paul and his writings, although the themes are not unique to Scripture. In fact, uh, the Lord has led me tonight to look at Psalm 89, which I believe uh, was in Paul's mind and has the same themes as this uh, hymn. This has the... um, the flair and the feel of a hymn, probably that Paul wrote, something close to that. Um, And we'll see um, the tie-ins to the Old Testament in Psalm 89 as well tonight and for the next few weeks. But the superiority of Christ in this description that we're going to read again together. Uh, We're not going to re-preach. I'm not going to re-preach that part, although it would be tempting. But the applications of what we talked about last week flow into the phrase or the passage that we have today. Because in 17, excuse me, verses 15 through 20, Paul launched into one of the most profound descriptions of God's Son, beloved Son, Jesus Christ, literally found it in the New Testament. Glorious. Describes the superiority and the preeminence. What is preeminence? He uses that word. It's just, it's the all-surpassing greatness of God's beloved Son. He described Jesus as the exact representation of God, not a copy, but the exact representation. As God is invisible, Jesus was in the flesh, the representation that we need of God. The all-surpassing, or uh, the exalted one, excuse me, in rank and privilege over all creation. Jesus is the creator over all things, Paul showed us, including all spiritual powers, all the good spiritual powers and all the fallen ones that, that followed after Satan. Jesus is superior. He created all of them. He created all of them good, right? And some of them uh, chose to follow after Satan. Uh, but God is and Jesus is superior, and they answer to him. He is the agent. He is the um, person that did the creating, but he also, it was for him. It was created for him, for his pleasure. All things were made for him. That was very clear, wasn't it? We don't live for ourselves, folks. If you haven't understood that yet, in this culture today, sometimes we still kind of, we get that image and, and that message so much. It's all about you. Remember, it's not all about us. It's about Jesus. That's clear. Everything was made for him. We serve in his pleasure. We should be happy and, and joyful about that. 
He served, or he um, he existed before creation, and he literally holds all creation together. We still don't know all the microscopic, smallest, microscopic, smallest particles that hold matter that hold us together. There's still a lot of um, wonder about even molecules and, and atoms and what holds those together. But folks, we know who holds all even the smallest parts together. It's Jesus Christ. He holds us together. That was clear. He's also head of the church. And that means he has full authority over us to do, to ask of us what he will. What does he ask us to do? To proclaim the glorious message of the gospel to a creation that is broken by sin. Because Jesus also as well was able to bring reconciliation. He is the initiator. He ruled in the eternity past. And he was the initiator, the firstborn of the resurrection, the initiator of our eternal, physical, and spiritual resurrection. Because Jesus is risen, and we sang of that this morning, folks. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus are assured that we will rise too. We will have a glorious new resurrection and a new body that we will have forever because of what Jesus did. He will also be the full restorer of all creation. And that will mean as well, he will subjugate all authorities. All will bow the knee, not just people, but all those spiritual authorities, all the demons as well. Whatever they are and look like, they'll bow the knee before Jesus. Throughout not just the world, our world, but throughout the created cosmos as well. And folks, he's made full peace available to all. Now, all of that, how did he accomplish all of this magnificent reconciliation? Let's read back through that in Marvel. It's striking, folks. Don't miss this. Let's go back to verse 15. This describes everything that I just went through. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, there's our word, preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, the full deity of God, he's creator, he's superior, all of these things, and what was he willing to do? through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven. The reconciliation, restoration of all of creation will happen at some point. Jesus will fix, folks, everything that's broken. How did he do that, though? This is striking. <coughs> this beloved son who was the fullness of God Accomplished reconciliation through bleeding and dying on a criminal's cross. You see the striking, the, the contrast there. The one who is deserving of all glory and honor. And here we have the picture of him. People spitting on him, beating him, shedding his blood on a cross. It just goes beyond our comprehension. And yet it's all true. It's all fact. And now today in verse 21 and through verse 23, 
Paul is going to give us the details about what this means for those of us who through faith accept that reconciliation offered to us. Here's our passage today. We're going to see verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We will marvel, folks, today in the reconciliation of the enemy. Father, it, it really just surpasses our understanding, blows our mind, as we say, that the one who created it all would be willing to suffer as a criminal, be beaten and tortured, spat upon, mocked in cruelty, shed his blood so that we could be reconciled. We who were the enemy, let this truth sink into our hearts today that we deserve none of the glory and the credit for this, but it's all for you. It's all for your glory. It's all for the pleasure of the Father and of the Son. And let us marvel that you pleasure, this was your pleasure to send your Son to die so that we could have restoration, reconciliation with you. Lord, no one else has ever done that. No one ever would. But you did. Let that flow, that truth flow over us today and motivate us to serve you without putting ourselves in the way, but giving you all the glory. So help us give us further understanding of this glorious truth today. That reconciliation is for the taking that you offer it through faith in Christ. And all this we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The reconciliation of the enemy. Here's the wonderful news, folks. The alienated are reconciled. And we were alienated. We were hostile to God. Humanity, folks, was in dire need of this great reconciliation with God. We stood condemned, hateful, the enemy. Paul makes that clear, verse 21. And you, that's all of us, the, the believers of Colossae, that are now a part of this church. Epaphras brought them the gospel, and they trusted Christ. But all of us were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That word alienated literally has the idea of being a foreigner. In our country, we understand that, and the issues that we have and the brokenness with, with um, how we allow foreigners into this country and and the right process by which they become citizens, when they go through that process, what do they receive? They receive all the rights and privileges of that kingdom or that nation. And Paul is reminding us, folks, there was a time where we were alienated, we were foreigners, and we deserved none of those privileges. We had none of the rights and privileges of citizens of God's kingdom because we weren't citizens. We were estranged. We were separated from him. We were foreigners. 
We were part of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, as he talked about earlier. We had no rights at all. We were alienated. And if that wasn't bad enough, he paints the picture even bleaker here with this truth that we had a hostile mindset toward God. I can put it this way. We were the enemies of God and we were proud of it. We had no desire to want to serve him, to be his own. We were, we were happy in our um, separation and our relationship with him and in our sin. As hard to imagine as that is, we needed saving, but we had no desire to be saved. We were hostile to God. And that hostile in mind means that we had a hostile mindset for God. We were his enemies, gladly doing evil deeds. All of our deeds were evil. We needed help, folks. And Jesus was willing to provide that. Ephesians 4 and Isaiah 53 remind us of these concepts as well. Um, Travis read part of this today. I'll go back over this as a reminder. Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated, there's our word again, from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Another way that Paul uses to describe the fact that we were hardened enemies against God, doing wickedness before him. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. All the way back in the Old Testament in Isaiah, said in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, that includes all of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased God to offer up his son to rebels who were his enemies. Don't ever lose the marvel of that, folks. All of this that we have is undeserved. Jesus, with his sacrifice and the blood of his cross, makes peace that we can have through relationship with him. I know, and I'm careful to talk about politics, but I know that we get frustrated on this particular issue of the state of um, letting people who are not citizens in our country over the borders without proper legal representation. They are literally illegal aliens. I know you're not supposed to say that. Undocumented workers, right? But they're in our country illegally as foreigners, and that causes many of us angst. And I'm not here to um, talk about a particular uh, political agenda. But this does, folks, actually really is a great picture of what Paul is presenting here. I don't know, as you read through the news, um, there are some atrocities being committed by those same people. And many times I can tell as I go to the news article that it, it will talk about somebody that has been horrifically killed or violence done to them. Um, and then it will also mention that these folks that had done this were foreigners that had crossed illegally on all these things. And I, I don't even read the article because it's so vicious and, and hostile from what they've done. Now, I'm not just blaming that on just that group of people. We have enough of our own murderers in our own country. You understand what I'm saying here. But 
it is awful, that image, and it frustrates us and angers us. But folks, do you realize that that is the image that Paul's giving of us before Christ? That we were foreigners that had no all intent about committing our own atrocities of evil before God. That's hard to forgive people like that, isn't it? Much less send your son to die for them. <laughs> That's exactly. We were the illegal aliens. And God sent his son to die for us, that we could be reconciled. You see why he says that in the end, it's not all about us, but it's about him. Because who would be willing to do that? But only a God of love who sent his son who loved us unsurpassable, amazing love. A deity, a being that has that kind of love deserves all of our service and worship, no questions asked. And that's the point of what Paul's saying here. Because here's the good news, that's the bad news. We were all once hostile to God, we were his enemies, we were alienated, but Jesus reconciled, provided reconciliation so that we could literally stand presentable before God. Remember when you were kids and your mom looked you over before church and she, or before you were going out, something important, especially with small children, there was, you know, some dirt here and a smudge here and some clothes that maybe were out of alignment or whatever. And she would say, come over here. I need to make you presentable, right? And she would do whatever she had to do to make that possible. Um, and moms do a great job with that. But folks, even more significantly, Jesus made us presentable to be before God, so we don't have to face eternal judgment. Now, that's an accomplishment, right? And he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Further explanation of the sacrifice the Son gave that we might be reconciled. Now, remember, we talked about what is this reconciliation? We mentioned this last week. Quick review. The Greek word for reconcile was used at this time for the political realm of diplomatic relationship, where a representative from one nation was attempting to work through issues with an offended party nation. And we have that going on today. We understand that concept. Again, the remarkable nature of this transaction, though, is that God is the offended party, was the offended party. And he still made reconciliation possible with those who had no desire to reconcile with him. Amazing. Paul describes as well, though, if you remember, this reconciliation of all things. Really, in the end, one day it means all of creation as well. That's how expansive, that's how complete this reconciliation was made through Jesus' death, not only through his shed blood, but Paul reminds now through the buffeting, the torture of his body of flesh, Jesus did. He was 100% man. What that means is Paul saying, folks, he felt every bit of that pain and that torture and that sacrifice. He felt it all. And he was willing to go through that so that not just we could have reconciliation with Christ, in the end, that all of creation could be restored and all of the opposition would be made to bow the knee. Subjugation of all enemies, restoration 
of all creation. I should make a note here. When I talk about man needing reconciliation with God, don't misunderstand me. It's not the opposite. It's not that God needed to reconcile himself with man. God didn't need reconciliation, but we did. And God provided all of that in the death and resurrection of his son. Full humanity. And isn't that what we reflect on in communion? The shed blood of Christ, the body of his flesh, he had to die in order to be able to present you, the second part of that verse 22, holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Romans 5 as well describes this in a wonderful way, so I'll read it. Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul loves to talk about that theme. He loves to meditate on that, that we were hopelessly the enemies of God in Christ's death and shed blood and resurrection allows us to be his friends. Paul never got over that. Let's make sure that we in our hearts never lose sight of that awesome, amazing sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice provided that cleansing then, right? We know this. That makes believers fully presentable before God as holy, blameless. And that final word there, above reproach, really means unaccusable. And so what Paul is describing here is that the final judgment for sin, we won't stand in judgment, folks. We will not face judgment for sin one day when the great throne, when God, when Jesus comes and judges sin we will stand amazingly without blemish and irreproachable is the description there. That is remarkable. Do we deserve that? No, we were the enemies of God. How do we receive this work that Jesus has done? We just put our faith and trust in him. It's all him. And we can literally stand then before the judge of all sin and be a, in essence, a perfect, without blemish, blameless, unaccusable. There's no sin that Satan can accuse us of that will allow us, once we've trusted, once we become a true child of God, to be convicted of our sin. We'll never face that, folks. And we were his enemies. But Jesus did all that for us. Marvelous truth. But Paul has one more concern here that may actually be a bit surprising. We'll get to that in a minute. I want to point out one more thing in application about standing before God. That is that, like I said last week, God is the author of the cosmic drama, right? And we are literally the performers whose our responsibility is, is to please the director, literally to bring pleasure to him. He writes the script. We follow along. But folks, we couldn't do that. We couldn't follow God's script. We couldn't please him. And Jesus came in his atoning sacrifice and made it possible for us to 
play our part, to be before God and to please him. So I was thinking about that. I remembered of a class that somebody recommended for me when I was at Bob Jones University and seminary. And I don't not entirely sure what I was thinking at that moment because I already had a very busy schedule. I think I even I was either maybe in Greek or I might have had Hebrew uh, that semester. But whoever talked me into this um, had a glowing description. He said, you know, I think that all uh, ministerial students ought to consider. And his his um his degree was in he was working on a degree in speech. And he said, I think all ministerial students ought to take this acting class. And he uh, named this uh, man who had been a part of the speech faculty for years, was involved in a lot of the dramas, was a very effective actor. Guy was very talented. I think he's still there uh, today. And he said, and, and, but this student said, this guy has such a great class and you'll learn so much. You ought to consider taking it. And for whatever reason, maybe I hadn't looked over my class schedule like I needed to at that point. But I'm like, yeah. That would be fun. I would like to do that. I do kind of like to act and, and things, and that can only help my presentation. And and I don't I don't know if it was a benefit. You'd be the judge of that today. But um, at the time, I was like, that sounds like great. How much work can it really be? Well, it was a lot. In fact, even after some language classes, it was one of the classes that was the most demanding of all the classes that I took at Bob Jones University. And this man, when he gave his curriculum and his expectations for the semester i'm looking at this like what have i done read this you know memorize this and be ready for this oh but it couldn't go back we had to be ready to stand before him and literally act and go through different things and at the end he believed the goal of this guy at the end of the semester we had to write our own script and and i just thought man well I did that, and, and God gave me grace to get through. But I remember one girl in particular really felt bad for her. She was not prepared to stand in front of the director. This guy was a demanding guy. And you could tell she was nervous, and he was kind of relentless. He sat there in the midst of our class, and she came up before him, and he's staring at her, and she started into this, and she just got nervous or whatever. She obviously had not memorized the whole thing. Thought she could get by. And she started to get nervous and she barely got through a paragraph. And she couldn't remember anything. She kept repeating words. And finally, she just stood there silent. She knew she wasn't prepared. And we all felt really bad for her. And that, you know, the silence was bad enough. She's still there. It's like, please let her out of her misery. And finally, he looked at her almost kind of coldly and said, you're obviously not prepared. Take your seat. And then the rest of us who were going about were like, oh, Lord, help me to do mine well. Folks, you don't want to be before the director of the universe unprepared. But we all were until Jesus reconciled us. And we stand before God totally, be, totally prepared for the judgment we won't face. We'll be with him forever. Jesus brought reconciliation that prepares us to be to stand before God and be irreproachable, spotless. Well, if we are truly the reconciled, if we truly are believers, there's another truth that is real, and that is that we will remain steadfast. 
we will remain faithful. And then Paul, verse 23, is as our final verse in the text this morning, kind of throws us a surprise. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It almost reads, as you start to read that, is Paul in doubt that believers will continue in their faith? And in context here, let's be clear, what is this faith he's talking about? It is the faith of the gospel. It's their faith in the gospel. Is Paul really doubting? If you continue, and the verdict is still out, I'm still watching you guys. Don't know if you're going to continue to the end. That ought to make us really troubled. Well, we know, folks, by other scriptures that that can't be the case, right? Honestly, if you think about it, if Paul is doubting the perseverance, and he's really referring to the perseverance of one's faith, as we call it, that one will be consistent and committed till the end. If he's doubting that, then really in some sense, he's doubting Jesus' work of, of reconciliation that we've just seen is fully sufficient, right? He's saying he, if he was doubting that, he'd be saying Jesus' reconciliatory work is less than fully effective. Well, we know Paul's not saying that. Well, what is he saying? Well, the Greek grammar here can best be translated, even in this phrase, if indeed you continue in the faith. It really can be translated as Paul's surety that true believers will persevere. In other words, like this, if, as I am sure, that it will. So, don't misunderstand. Paul is not doubting in a true believer's ability to persevere. Because Jesus' work is fully sufficient. But he is giving a sober warning here. It's to those who are insincere in their claims of Christ. And yet are a part of the church. And many of those in the church wouldn't even know that... Um, that these folks were insincere or that they had not provided a true confession, that they were faking it, hypocrites in some way or another. We'll get back to that in just a minute. But he reinforces the fact that those that are true believers will remain in the faith by these words that he uses next, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He describes, really, the believer's perseverance here in building terms. That Greek word for stable re refers to relying on a firm foundation. Steadfast means settled, permanent. It really can mean immovable. Okay. So if a person is steadfast here in that Greek word, Paul's not doubting because they're immovable in their relationship with Christ. There's no doubt here. And he says that person will not shift positions. Shifting. If you are grounded on a fully stable foundation, you don't have any worries of that building coming crashing to the ground. You're not shifting at all, even in the midst of an earthquake. I don't know if you've ever been through an earthquake. Uh, in Maryland, of all places, I was sitting in my office one time um, studying, and a weird, very weird thing happened. It was like the walls were getting, were like wavy. And they started to wave a little bit. And I noticed some of my books shaking just a little bit. I thought, man, 
I probably drank too much coffee today. <laughs> this is really, and I could feel the floor kind of just um, shifting a little bit or, or vibrating more was, was a better term. And I quickly ran out the door and I ran to the front and our senior pastor met me at the front door and we were wondering, well, what in the world is going on? Well, it comes to find out very soon that we had experienced a very rare minor earthquake there in that part of Maryland. That was the only time I'd ever experienced an earthquake. And that was more than enough for me. I don't think I ever desired to live in California unless, you know, God said directly, you're going to California. Those earthquakes, it's disturbing and um, scary to live under shifting a foundation that's shifting. But we don't have that with Christ, folks. We have a full, firm foundation that will never shift. So those that are true believers that have been built on the foundation, there is no doubt that they will make it. Isn't this really what Christ is saying in Matthew 7, 24 through 27? Every one of them who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man, confident, who built his house on a rock. The rains fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. But you know the rest, the foolish men, maybe even those who are acting like Christians, but they've not placed their faith on the foundation of Christ. They've not truly done that. They've built their house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. That is really what Paul is describing here as well. Make sure that you have the foundation of Christ. Christ's atoning sacrifice makes it possible for us to please God. So who is this? This is a true warning, though, right? He says, if indeed, who's the warning for the insincere member of a church who likes the benefits maybe of the Christian community but is not committed to its message of faith. Can that happen? I know of, think of two. This happens to be ladies in this illustration. It could have been men as well. In a ministry that I was in in the past, um, the husband started attending and you could tell he trusted Christ and he was all in and he was serving or whatever, but his wife was a little more hesitant came from a different religious background, and she eventually came, and she got excited about what was going on in the church. She jumped into things, and was she was really excited about the preaching, and she went on and on about how exciting it was. I had the opportunity, actually, even to teach a class on a particular book of the Bible, on Galatians, of all things, and she took that class and was marveling over the truths, and yet every time that I would explain the reality of the gospel, because, you know, the warnings in Galatians are stark about those that don't, that reject the gospel, right? And she would hear those things. It was interesting. She would always repeat them back and she would ask questions, but she would change the wording into something that I hadn't said. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's not that hard. It's, it's simple. Here's the gospel. I mean, the truths are apparent and it's just... She would kind of come around, oh, okay, I think I get that. She even went on a missions trip one time and uh, went all the way out into Eastern Europe, came back. At some point, she was having struggles with her husband. They were having trouble reconciling. some point, after I was gone, I heard that she had stopped attending church altogether and literally in the 
the minds of the leaders, she had fallen away. No interest in church anymore. How is that possible? She tasted of all of the good things of ministry. She experienced the work of the Spirit. But folks, as far as I'm concerned, what I can see, there was no true foundation in her own life. That's who this warning is for. There are lots of people who join a church and say, I like the fellowship, and I like the experience, and I like the camaraderie, I like the music, and wow, they, you know, I just am so in-depth, or the, the preaching, or, or whatever they like, the teacher, and yet they will not commit to Jesus Christ. There may be those as well who just find it more comfortable. They grew up in a Christian family. You know, it's just more comfortable to go along right now. My parents are Christians. Uh, everybody, you know, like around me are, 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 are Christians, so I'm getting benefits from this. I don't want to rock the boat, so I'll just go along and, and play the part. And Paul says, no, we watch. And if you don't continue in the faith, then my warning for you is that you will not be reconciled to life. Does that make sense? Those that truly have a relationship with God, that truly put their faith in Jesus Christ, folks, this warning is not for them. You don't have any doubt. Don't have any doubt that you're going to fall away. You can't be steadfast, immovable, non-shifting, if your foundation is Christ, you can't be, you can't experience that. But for those who don't have a real relationship with Jesus, Paul says, you're not reconciled. Be sure, make sure your commitment, your faith is real. The warning is for those folks. The reconciled will remain faithful. We can count on that. And they'll also remain committed to the gospel. The last part of verse 23, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. A true believer, a follower of the beloved son, will have interest in the proclamation of the gospel, some more than others. But it will be a burden to all of us who trust Christ. We'll have a desire, and we have a desire, and that's why we support missionaries that are literally around the world, because we have a desire for the gospel to be spread around the whole world. That's interesting here. A number of, tr of versions translate the Greek here. It's the same Greek word, but they translate it, proclaimed to every creature. And that's problematic, because we know that although God has revealed himself in his general revelation, general creation to all, but it's not true that every person that's ever lived throughout history has heard the gospel. I think we understand that. But it can be confusing if you read it that way. That Greek word, it's the same Greek word, can also be translated proclaimed in all creation. And that better reflects what's going on here, is that Jesus intended his followers to proclaim the gospel to the uttermost part of the world. That was his commission, right? And so that's the intent. And folks, it will happen. Not that everyone will get saved, or not that even every individual will hear of the gospel throughout time, but it will spread throughout the whole world. That will happen. When will it happen? It hasn't happened yet. Only God knows that time when that will be accomplished, when the gospel has literally gone to every part of the world, God knows, but it will be accomplished. When that's accomplished, Jesus will return. 
Only God knows that. But it will happen, and that's what Paul is saying here. It will go to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus said it would with his followers. And now the end of this explanation gives Paul opportunity to talk about his own commitment to the spread of the gospel. And he'll continue that next week. But isn't that amazing? Paul is talking about his commitment to spreading the message of Jesus Christ, one who was a full enemy of the followers of Jesus. That's on his resume. It's like David's sin, right? That was Paul's sin. It was great sin. He was the enemy. He was hostile to God. And now here he is talking about his commitment to Christ. That is a change, folks, that is permanent. And it came through reconciliation and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that the mind-boggling truth, then? The creator of the universe, the beloved son, was willing to die a brutal criminal's death so that humanity could be reconciled to God through a relationship with the beloved son. He took our penalty and allowed his enemies to be reconciled to him. And we are now able to be made fully presentable to God as blameless and holy. If there's one here today, somehow, folks, it's still faking it. You have an insincere claim on Jesus Christ. Make that real today. Just put your faith in him. And be reconciled. For those of us who understand these truths and marvel at the creator of the universe that would do this for us, let it motivate you. Live for him always, folks. Don't let your life be all about yourself. You're deceiving yourself. It's not. We serve at his pleasure. Are you happy with that? There's great joy in serving Jesus at his pleasure rather than making life all about yourself and your own wants and your own frustrations. Give those over to Jesus and serve in faith. Father, what a blessing it is to meditate on these truths. Three short verses that describe the blessings of what your son accomplished for us. And the marvelous truth that he was willing to do that. Let us always rejoice and praise you for the sacrifice of the Son in his shed blood and in his body. He would be willing to make illegal aliens who were hostile to you citizens of the eternal kingdom. All through his work and through faith in him. But Lord, if there is anybody today that has an illegitimate claim to Christianity because their faith is not real, let them heed this warning. They are not reconciled. Run to Christ and face and experience that reconciliation. Lord, we long for the day when all creation will be reconciled, when it will be restored, and all of the opponents, the enemies of you, will bow before the great King, Jesus Christ. May he come soon. But in the meantime, thank you that we are reconciled. Help us serve you well and to proclaim Christ to the enemies of him that can become his friends through his work for us. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.